entering the Freedom Hut. Team, I trust you had a fantastic 4th of July Independence Day weekend. We are back in action here in the Freedom Hut. Man, we got a lot to cover. The asylum crisis continues on. Iran says they have exceeded their nuke enrichment limit. Epstein has been charged with sexual trafficking of minors. Joe Biden has apologized. Swalwell is out. We got that and so much more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make make no mistake. America, you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. We will always be the people who defeated a tyrant, crossed a continent, Harness science, took to the skies, and soared into the heavens. Because we will never forget that we are Americans, and the future belongs to us. The future belongs to the brave, the strong, the proud, and the free. We are one people chasing one dream and one magnificent destiny. We all share the same heroes, the same home, the same heart, and we are all made by the same almighty God. The spirit of American independence will never fade, never fail, but will reign forever and ever and ever. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. So we we ate, we were able to hear, see for ourselves, watch for ourselves the Trump Fourth of July speech, which we were told by the media was going to be, oh my gosh, it's the beginning of martial law. There will be tanks in the streets and Trump on the podium and so much hysteria the snowflakes were melting all over the place what was going on folks i was here in swamptopia in uh swamp swamp tastic stand here in uh, in washington dc it was very nice managed to uh catch a glimpse of some of the festivities not a whole lot of it though we didn't have great weather for it but anyway the point is trump decided to throw a commemoration a celebration of our independence on fourth of july and have show some respect for the military and it turns out that what he said he wanted to do was exactly what he did (laughs) it wasn't a it wasn't a campaign rally it wasn't uh you know a big effort to just own the libs it was a flyover and you know oh oh my gosh there are planes that are military in the sky yeah, like at NFL games on a regular basis. I mean, what, what's the what's the so what here, folks? I mean, libs really were losing it going. I thought they'd calm down a little bit, you know, take a moment to realize the Democrat field for the uh, presidential primary is real weak and uh, they're going to have some big problems beating Trump if the economy stays where it is. I thought maybe they would do some some regrouping and some strategizing. But instead, there was panic before the speech which we can just revisit for a moment here. Play clip one. 
Donald Trump has hijacked the nation's previously nonpartisan Fourth of July celebration. Is this just norm-defying, or is there anything dangerous about it? It's just obscene. And the speech is going to be dreadful. They're going to have their Confederate flags flying and their license plates and all kinds of troublemaking. You will hear criticism of his critics. You will hear um, a celebration of self. There'll be a lot of other people who are going to meet like in a storm, and you're going to have a real conflict. There's all kinds of catastrophes. Sure looks like a partisan re-election rally on public space. Donald Trump's campaign rally in Washington paid for by the American taxpayer. Combination Trump rally and Kim Jong-un style military parade. So the chest-thumping displays put on by authoritarian regimes. This is the kind of military display that we were used to seeing from the Soviet Union. I'm thinking Red Square, um, North Korea, Egypt. The hope for violence would be, of course, treasonous. Not to expect it would be naive. How much stupid can we fit into one soundbite? We were really reaching the outer limit there. I had 20 minutes of material, Buck. I mean, Mike, that was nuts. Yep. What, what, was Chris, what does Chris Matthews even think that he is saying? The hope for violence is the violence the hope. What is that? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. It was special to watch, I'll tell you that. It was, it was bon- Were you in Philly for the fourth? Or were you in NYC? No, I stayed in NYC. I was I was going to go to Philly, but uh, I stayed up here to watch uh, all the festivities on uh, TV, and then uh, went out to Westchester, New York, for for a bit. Oh, very nice, very nice, very civilized place, Westchester. Yeah, yeah nice. I mean, I'm, I was down here in the swamp. You know, it was a little swampy. The weather wasn't so great, but you know, all this panic. It, it's it's hard to take any of these people seriously, and they just keep on doubling down on the crazy all the time. So that was the. The meltdown before Trump's Fourth of July speech, which anybody who heard, anyone who took the time to actually watch it, was was just a very good speech about America and how this place is awesome, and we we should feel proud of our patriotism, right? This isn't what the Democrats do, which is we're proud of our understanding of the flaws of America and our willingness to confront American flaws. No, we think this is a great country. Yeah, of course it's got problems. Every country's got problems, but America is fantastic. We're very lucky to be Americans. We think there's something special about being an American, which I don't know if Democrats these days really think that's the case because they increasingly will just advocate for anyone to be treated like an American, no matter how they get here, what they do. Just you want to show up, you want to be a part of things, even if you violate our laws in the process, no problems. They have no issue with that whatsoever. So they freaked out before, which we knew they would do. But here's the part of it I haven't had a chance to talk to you about at all yet. And that is after Trump's 4th of July address, they decided that they still were freaked out. They still had problems with it. Here was the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. You know, it's, what a, just a clown show over there. Here's what they were saying after Trump's 4th of July speech. They, you know, they remember, we, we played a soundbite for you to start this off with, oh my gosh, it's like the Soviet Union, and oh my gosh, Kim Jong-un, a military parade, chest thumping. I heard that there were tanks on the streets just driving around like big, heavy tanks. You know, I woke up the day after this speech, and I know I was promised that martial law was coming, but... Strangely, martial law in the streets of D.C. in the era of Trump felt a whole lot like D.C. the day before, as in totally normal. And if anything, I guess they could say that Trump is trying to lull us all into a false sense of security with all of the optimism, prosperity and freedom that he advocates for 
on a regular basis. But oh my gosh, he's like a dictator. Here's what they were saying about the speech after it happened. Play three. Uh, look, it's very unusual to see something like this. And I, I still go back to what I said before. I think I'm, I'm just troubled about the militaristic tone of this whole thing. Um, first, first, we retreated to essentially eighth grade uh, history um, that was fairly sepia-toned and saccharine uh, in, in its depth and context. In fact, it was lacking a lot of depth and context. And I heard nothing other than a, a pledge to put the American flag on Mars. I heard nothing in this speech about where this country should be going what we should be working on, some of the problems we need to fix. I could have gotten this off of watching Schoolhouse Rock, and I frankly didn't need uh, all the militaristic uh, uh, you know, displays of, of, of might. I think it's just, again, not who we are as a country. These speeches are sort of um, a little low. They're, they're rudimentary. They're, they're very way. basic. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it just seems like he's reading Wikipedia page about historical events, you know, on this date this happened. I mean, these people are delusional haters. They really are. I'm not saying you have to like the speech. I mean, if you're not into it, but let's be let's be honest here, folks. I mean, it was as good a presidential speech as you're going to hear on this and under the circumstances at any point in time. These are, this is the same crew of, of of jerks over at CNN that in the Obama era, everything Obama said, oh, my gosh, he's so brilliant. He's so amazing. It's just pathetic. Just be honest about it. You guys hate Trump. Everything he does, you hate. You call for martial law. One of the great skills that Trump has, one of the one of the really useful byproducts of Trumpism, and some might think it's actually a feature and not a bug, is that Trump is able to sift through, is, is able to be a, a, a kind of mechanism for unearthing the truth about liberals all the time. How crazy are they really? Who are these people that claim that they better know how to run your life and how to run this country than their political opponents? Trump shows them to be just a bunch of wackos. Now, Trump has look at the the different once revered figures on the left that, that Trump has shown to be utterly unhinged. James Comey, Brennan, you know, these these figures from within the bureaucracy and the establishment that we're all supposed to bow down to. People are jerks. They're clowns. I don't know anything. We know this because of Trump. We know this because, you know, James Clapper runs around mumbling incoherently about how Trump is a Russian a Russian asset. We know this because, you know, CNN will find some former member of the senior brass, of the military to go on TV after a. I mean, it's a nice event. I mean, this is the Fourth of July speech Trump gave. This is like, you know, can he. Can he throw a birthday party for his wife and say some nice things about her? Or, you know, it's, oh, my gosh, the way he speaks about Melania, it's exactly the way that a dictator would. My gosh, how will we ever feel safe at night again? Do you hear? He said, he said Melania is the most beautiful woman in the world. That's not that's not accurate. He can't prove that. Fact check him on that. Someone fact check. He said his wife is the most beautiful woman in the world. This is what they are. This is how crazy they've become. And, and now they think that we should put them back in power, let, let them have more of a say over our lives. They already have so much control in the media, and I really wish we would just start to pull back the, the stranglehold that the, the libs continue to have in, in cable news. I mean, yeah, there's Fox, thank heavens. But after Fox, what else is there? 
They have so many channels. They have so many platforms for this kind of nonsense. And they just showed themselves to be a bunch of, of look, a bunch of whiny losers after this 4th of July thing. No one was really going to remember it after it happened. I mean, it was a nice thing for the people that wanted to partake. It wasn't a, it wasn't a nasty partisan slugfest. It was n- none of those things. And sure enough, they still found something to be outraged about. They always find something to be outraged about. Oh, oh that's not even enough. Ted Lieu, congressman from California, never short on crazy things to say, uh, wants the FEC to look into this. Oh, that's right. Lawfare, even when it comes to a patriotic event on the 4th of July. Play four. Uh, Members of Congress can't even use official resources to participate in a parade. In this case, Trump diverted $2.5 million of national park fees to pay for his party. And I've asked the Federal Election Commission to look into this because how can you have all this taxpayer money do this event and then have the Republican National Committee be involved in such a major way, handing out VIP passes to their major donors? That's right. Let's pass it off to the FEC. They'll they'll save you libs from Trumpism. They'll save you from the ongoing nightmare of Donald Trump as president. It's just always, you know, it's either this or they're whining about the emoluments clause or, you know, someone bought someone from Kazakhstan who knows someone from Russia, a martini at the Trump hotel. And if you do the math, that means that they put point zero 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 one pennies in Ivanka's pocket. I mean, just these people are nuts. It was 4th of July. I thought we'd have a little bit of a respite from the Democrats being crazy, but they couldn't help. They can't help themselves. They're crazy even in 4th of July. There, there is nothing that is outside the bounds of their Trump derangement syndrome. There, there is nothing that is for them a, a space where politics do not have to intrude in the era of Trump because they cannot separate Trump from anything ever. Now, I hope you all had a very lovely and uh, relaxing 4th of July. I know Independence Day, but colloquial people say 4th of July, right? I, obviously, I know it's Independence Day. We'll call it Independence Day, but I hope you had a great weekend, a uh, great long weekend for those of you that are able to take some time off. Those of you listening to this overseas who are uh, active duty, and God bless and thank you for what you do and sorry you weren't able to be home, but I hope you at least got the chance to kick back, relax, and, and get some some off time. Uh, but here's here's the real bottom line for all this. They are upset. The other side is really upset because the country goes in, went into this 4th of July ceremony, this 4th of July weekend, with facts that cannot be argued. The economy is strong. The country is doing well. We are not fighting or about to fight some massive war that we shouldn't be in. We are at relative peace. We are at economic prosperity. The tax cuts, the deregulation, it has worked. People are getting hired. People are finding jobs. Real estate values are going up in major areas across the country. I mean, you just look and look and look all over the place. And Trump is better at this job than his predecessor was. And I'd argue he's probably better at his job than his predecessor's predecessor. That's right, than Bush was. He's better at this, folks. He has been a better president thus far than both of the men who preceded him. So... What are we to make of that when they were when the smart set, so to speak, was telling us that not only would he not be a good president, but that he would destroy the economy and we'd be at huge risk and nuclear war and dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, all that. No, we went to this this Independence Day celebration with a country that's on its feet, that's growing, that's doing well. 
And God bless us all for that one. And thank God for that. This country's in fantastic shape. I know we're going to get into the problems. The border's a mess. It's the worst it's been in decades. Maybe the worst in my whole life. It's not getting fixed because Democrats are crazy. We got a lot of problems. I'm not saying that. And we're going to focus on the show, uh, focus on those problems over the course of the show because we have to. But I do think it's important to take a moment that, you know, unless you're a Trump deranged lib, you got to look at what's going on in America and say, yeah, things are good. Take a deep breath. Enjoy it a little bit for a second. Things are good in this country. It's not always going to be the case. We're going to we're going to have days where I have to come on here and say, man, we are in really rough shape as a country. But right now in Trump's America, things are strong. The approval ratings are starting to show that, by the way. But the border is still very much a mess. We got to get into this because if this doesn't get fixed, I don't know what happens for Trump in 2020. I'm, I'm concerned. We'll be right back. But I look at this country today and I tell people, and I've wanted to say this loud so many times, Colin Kaepernick was getting paid $14 million a year to throw a ball. My son died for $14,000 a year. And he's given more than any football player, any athlete has ever given. And to this day, still sending kids to college off $1,000 from our little hometown that people give. I hear these Marines that come to my house and stay for four days. You know, I got 30 Marines that sleep on my floor. And it's great, but they tell us that the only thing that kept them going is when they could look up and see that flag, they had hope to go back home to, and I hope that this country was going to change for the better, not for the worse. Colin Kaepernick, that was a gold star mom talking about how she feels about the whole flag protest, because that's what they are, flag protests. Colin Kaepernick shared this on the 4th of July. What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? This 4th of July is yours, not mine. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than the people of these United States at this very hour. Quoting Frederick Douglass. Well, that was only one part of that speech. Douglass went on to say, interpreted as it ought to be interpreted, the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. Read its preamble, consider its purposes. Is slavery among them? Is it at the gateway or is it in the temple? It is neither. Frederick Douglass gave a fantastic speech that day. But some people in the media want to just cherry pick from it and not represent it for what it was. Because they're more interested in the propaganda of destroying this nation and trying to harm it on its very birthday of independence. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. I've been able to tell you what's coming when we're talking about the border and what's happening at our southern border. I've been down there. I've been talking to people that are on the front lines regularly. And I mentioned to you some months ago that during my time covering the border crisis, uh, it, it, it became very clear that we were also going to see a surge in non-Central American border crossings, uh, illegal, illegal crossings. Essentially, the entirety of the third world around the world is going to realize at some point, oh, wait, all I have to do is show up at the border of the U.S. and Mexico with a child and I, too, can benefit from this system. I can skip the immigration procedures such as they are and find myself in the interior of the United States essentially home free. 
and that this would be a reality very, very soon. Well, sure enough, we are seeing this. I, I remember hearing about Bangladeshis and uh, uh, Pakistanis and Chinese and Cubans and, and other what they call OTMs other than Mexican, but not OTM Northern Triangle, which would be Central American countries of El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. No, these are global OTMs crossing the border. This is from not even in the Western Hemisphere. And sure enough, now the story is going to be that anyone who tries to stop that from happening is shutting off the gates of this beacon of freedom and nation of immigrants, all this stuff they say, uh, at a time when the rest of the world needs America more than ever. This is what they're going to say. We will soon switch. You will see a switch from conditions at the border are unacceptable, inhumane, Nazi-like even, as a way of focusing all this attention on that issue. Meanwhile, while illegal crossing is happening at an unprecedented rate, and the border is effectively open, and our sovereignty is eroding more and more with each passing day, you will soon see, oh no, what are we, what are we going to do about the fact that people from all over the world want to come here? This is a story in the L.A. Times today. Facing Trump's asylum limits, refugees from as far as Africa languish in a Mexican camp. A group of roughly 100 Haitians, Africans, and South Americans crossed the Rio Grande, just shallow enough for adults to wade despite an overnight storm. As they wade on the muddy bank near Del Rio, Texas, to, the re- to surrender themselves to the Border Patrol, the voices of children in the group carry across the river to the Mexican side. There in the city of Ciudad Acuna, Hundreds of migrants have formed a, an impromptu refugee camp in an ecological park bound on one side by the river. Just outside the park, the official port of entry to the United States sits at the end of a short bridge. They've crossed thousands of miles by foot, boat, and bus to seek asylum in the U.S., only to find themselves stalled in a purgatory of soggy tents and overflowing bathrooms. Now they face an uncertain weight prolonged by Trump administration policy, the temptation to make the risky and illegal river crossing mounts daily. End quote. Folks, you see what they're doing here, right? They are preparing for what is obviously going to be a surge in migrants from all over the world showing up with children now, all trying to take advantage of the loophole. And because the Trump administration is saying, hold on a second, we can only take so many people at the legal ports of entry at a time because they're overwhelmed. Now they'll be saying anyone who crosses illegally, it's not their fault. Oh, look at that. Anyone who makes the illegal decision to cross our border and to surrender themselves once they've crossed that border, anyone who does that will find himself overwhelmingly himself or herself uh, being held up as a victim of U.S. policy. In fact, we will be told increasingly that the very reason that people are showing up in this country from all over the world, including Central America, is because of U.S. policy. So you see, the left is preparing to tell you that so what if we have an open border? It's our fault that they're all coming here and we have an obligation to take them in to provide for them 
and to apologize for the bad conduct of America around the world that led to them needing to come here. My friends, they will never admit, because many of them will never believe that this is a crisis of people taking advantage of the American people. That's what is happening. They'll never admit that. It'll always be some other story. It'll always be it was our fault, don't you see? We are the reason that people are fleeing to our shores. We are the reason. Sure, we we run, quote, concentration camps, according to Ocasio-Cortez, but because we're so terrible all over the world, these people have no choice but to rush willingly into our concentration camps. Only morons could believe this, but unfortunately, morons seem to run the Democratic Party and most of the mainstream media. Basically, all of the mainstream media. People making these decisions don't care how ridiculous their arguments are, how dishonest their positions may be. They will keep coming up with new ways to somehow avoid confronting what's really happening here, which is the destruction of American territorial integrity and the destruction of our sovereignty, all in the name of unrestricted immigration and the exploitation of the good faith of the American people and our asylum laws. That's what's happening here. But they won't talk about that. They only want to talk about other things. We'll be back with more. Stay with me. What did they say on the ground? Ask a CPP agent. That's the one thing. I can talk to the secretary and he can say throw more money at a broken system, at an inhumane system. Three agents took me aside, away from my colleagues and said, more money is not going to fix this. That they were not trained to separate children. That they don't want to separate two-year-olds away from their mothers. That's not what they were trained for. That's not what they signed up for in their service to our country. They signed up to protect the border, not to separate children, not to put people in cages. That's Rashida Tlaib as part of this very obvious effort to focus the American people away from our de facto open border situation, the flood of migrants across the border, the exploitation of our asylum system as an extra legal means of staying in the country forever and make it all about, oh, but we're being so mean to the people who are doing this. We're being so cruel, so inhumane. Our Border Patrol are like SS agents at the concentration camps, as they say, of our southern border. This has been a, an effort, a coordinated effort by the Democrats. And unfortunately, it has worked pretty well up to this point. We are much more focused on what is happening at our southern border to the migrants than what the migrants are doing to our asylum process and to immigration and to rule of law and to sovereignty. None of that gets talked about in the media. It's always, oh, the poor migrants at the border. What's going on? Keep in mind that none of them have to go through this process at all. They're choosing to do this. They're choosing to do this. But uh, you know, to, to leave here is, and, and this, this comes across in her whole, you know, she gave this interview on Sunday. Um, it's, not, it's not true what she says. I mean, she, she said that this was with Martha McCallum, or not Martha McCallum, sorry, Martha Raddatz, rather, at ABC. She said uh, that this is not as bad as it was in the 80s in terms of illegal crossings. Well, that's not really accurate. It's worse than it was in the 80s because the 80s, the illegal crossings that were happening were single Mexican males who could be very quickly 
put back into Mexico. That's not happening now. These are permanent. You know, think about it this way. Is it a is it more of an issue if somebody walks across your backyard or if somebody pitches a tent in your yard and says, I want to live here forever? Would you rather have five people walk across your yard or one person who says, I'm living here forever now? That's the difference in the numbers between the migrant, although I know some Mexican migrants did stay forever, but all of the Central American and other migrants from all over the world, they're going to stay forever. They're not going anywhere. The whole purpose of what they're doing is to stay here forever, to exploit our immigration laws and to make sure that they don't have to go through the normal legal processes. So let's just be clear about this. You know, all along what I've been telling you about the border has proven to be true. That there was a crisis, the caravans were coming, that they weren't going to show up for their hearings, the Democrats were going to go uh, deeper and deeper down the open borders path. It's all been quite predictable. And their talking points have to get replaced with new talking points because what they really are giving you are just a series of temporarily effective lies. Oh, there's no crisis. Oh, the caravans won't show up. Oh, they're going to show up for their hearings. Oh, there's not that many markets from the rest of the world that are going to come. All this is not true. Fake, fake, fake news over and over again from the Democrat-aligned media. Tlaib, though, saying that, you know, she was pulled, pulled aside by members of Customs and Border Patrol who wanted to let her know that the money wasn't going to fix the problem. I, I don't believe her. Because if you work for Customs and Border Patrol and you know anything about what's going on right now, which I think most of them do know what's going on with the border, you know anything about the political environment, you know that Rashida Tlaib and Ocasio-Cortez and these other far-left Democrat, effectively open border ad, uh, advocates out there, all they want to do is trash Border Patrol. They don't want to help Border Patrol. They want to trash the Border Patrol. They want to say that they're the bad guys. They're the people that are making this Terrible stuff happened to all these migrant children who were showing up, including, by the way, the migrant children who show up unaccompanied. It never really gets talked about. What kind of parents do that? Never allowed to, never allowed to bring that up, right? Oh, no, it's all out of desperation. Uh, there are a lot of people who live in Honduras and El Salvador, and, you know, they're just fine. These are not countries in the midst of, a, of an ethnic cleansing or a civil war. That's what we're talking about usually with asylum, a mass famine. That's what asylum is supposed to be for. Or you're an individual who the government is going to imprison, torture, and execute if you're not able to flee your home country. It's not, I want a higher minimum wage and free health care. That's not what asylum is for. But that's what it's being used for now. And this has been clear all along. These are economic migrants. But Rashida Tlaib and Ocasio-Cortez know the most effective way to get people focused on conditions and not the long-term reality what's happening the border is to just dump on border patrol that's why i don't believe that members of border patrol would pull rashida to leave aside and, and give her a a very useful talking point like this you know that's that's what's really happening here i think she's lying would it surprise me if she had to leave but i thought ocasio cortez was lying about uh she said she felt under threat with border patrol all this. by the way i, I did rallies with border patrol i had a great time with border patrol Everyone was very, prof- very professional, honestly, very warm and and uh, very friendly. And but I think they also know that I'm there to talk about what's really happening. I don't come down there with some agenda of trashing them, which is what these Democrats are doing. Just showing up to trash them. They go there so they have greater credibility 
for the smear effort that they're running. And then they have the gall, they have the brazenness to leave and Ocasio-Cortez to vote against the multi-billion dollar aid package that's going to help the very conditions they claim to be so outraged by. Here's Rashida Tlaib trying to explain, you know, where she is on this one and and how Nancy Pelosi is the problem. Play 16. Uplift the women, especially the women of color within your caucus that are out there, because I'll tell you, more people like us, more people like me that come out to vote, we win. It is very disappointing that the speaker would ever try to uh, diminish our voices in so many ways. Diminish the voices. That's because Pelosi has said, you know, look, they, they voted against this. What, what are they doing? It was a very stupid thing to do. It was a very, a very self-indulgent, grandstanding thing to do. And a number of Democrats did it because what really matters to Ocasio-Cortez, not the children of the border, the left-wing base. Well, we, we have AOC saying, saying that she is, uh, that she felt unsafe at the border. Play 23. I mean, in that last facility, I was not safe from the officers in that facility. That's a disgusting thing for her to say. It's a horrible thing for a member of Congress. And she's a liar. Lying. How is she not safe? Well, what what did she think? What, a member of Border Patrol was going to uh, step out of line and put hands on Ocasio-Cortez? Please, no way. Could you imagine if she went and, and I, I really don't see this as, as a as a as a different scenario. Could you imagine if she went to a U.S. military base to meet with, you know, meet with Army Rangers? And she said, well, you know, when I went into the meeting room, uh, I didn't feel safe with members of the United States military with our Army Rangers. I, I didn't think that, you know, I, I, I could be trusted. My physical safety could be trusted in their presence. What a horrible thing for her to say. And yet, and yet she says it. She says it, and the left doesn't really even come down on her particularly hard for her. They, Many of them believe her, like a bunch of morons. Because it's easier for them to make this. The only way that they can seize any kind of moral high ground here and not accept it, they're now for open borders. That's what they're, they're for the eradication of U.S. sovereignty and open borders. That is what the Democratic Party, because the left now runs the Democratic Party, is in favor of. They can't make the intellectual argument they can't make the honest argument about that in front of the American people. So what do they do? They switch and they make it about how we are not being kind enough to the migrants at the border. We're like Nazis, concentration camps at the border. They emotionalize the issue. And they throw all the Border Patrol, all of Immigration and Customs Enforcement under the bus in the process and don't feel bad about it at all because they have an agenda they're pursuing. The Democratic Party is a party without honor. It's a, it's a party that ideologically embraces disgraceful conduct, immoral conduct, and a stop-at-nothing attitude all the time. Which also reminds me of why many of us, despite some of the imperfections, are so thankful for Trump. Because we need, when you're dealing with people like this, you know, when you're dealing with thugs that want to come in and destroy your store, you need a brawler. You know, you, you don't you don't need a bureaucrat from City Hall to show up and say, uh, you know, please stop destroying this person's, uh, you know, stop destroying all their products. No, you need someone who shows up and says, the next time somebody comes in here with a baseball bat, I'm going to have a baseball bat. It's what we're dealing with with the Democrats, folks. Wartime conservatism. We can either embrace this or not. 
Look what they're doing to the border. Look at how disgraceful they are. We can either face up to this and challenge them and try to defeat them politically or just let them ruin the country, which is what they're trying to do. They're trying to ruin the country. Welcome back, team. Buck Sexton here. This was Joe Biden but a month ago. Are you going to apologize? Apologize for what? Cory Booker's called for it. Cory should apologize. He knows better. There's not a racist bone in my body. I've been involved in civil rights my whole career. And this is the former vice president, Joe Biden, as of, oh, this week. Play the clip. Now, was I wrong a few weeks ago? Somehow give the impression of people that I was praising those men who I successfully opposed time and again? Yes, I was. I regret it. And I'm sorry for any pain or misconception. I'm going to Oh, there is so much going on here. Biden, Biden, Biden. Buddy, what are you doing? Have you learned nothing, Joe Biden, from watching as the social justice warriors excoriate Republicans and uh, enforce the most arbitrary standards of acceptable conduct in public speech and public affairs? Uh, push for people to apologize, only them to crush them and use the apology as part of that crushing process. It's like Biden just has been in some cryogenic chamber for the last 15 years or something and doesn't really know what's going on. Maybe he's been in the chamber a lot longer than that. Joe Biden was never, never going to be able to convince the social justice left that his apology is sufficient because the social justice left with the Democratic Party doesn't really think he's a racist, doesn't really think that he stepped out of line in some way that needs to be corrected. They're using this whole controversy over what he said about being a United States senator and working with senators, including senators who were segregationists. They're using that to clear old man Biden out the way so that the younger, establishment-friendly Democrat candidates have their lane. Booker, Warren, Harris. I know Warren's a progressive, but the establishment likes Warren enough that she's, look, she could end up being the nominee, my friends. Uh, you know, she's, she's gained a lot in the polls, and Democrats have just decided that the whole fake, fake Indian thing, they've moved past it. They don't really care. So it really well, well could be that you have Elizabeth Warren here as the nominee, but there's... There's so much to Biden's apology that I find um, I find bothersome. Um, for one, I don't like anybody having to do this this ritual humiliation, this bending of of the knee um, that has has gone on here. Because as a conservative, this happens to us all the time. Joe Biden's effectively getting a dose of what it means to be a conservative in America today, which is that it doesn't matter how much you've done. For civil rights, it doesn't matter how much good faith you've shown over the years on matters relating to race or none of that matters. The moment that you are expendable or in some way problematic for the Democrats, the moment they decide that it's time to put you out to pasture and you are donezo. All right. That's what ends up happening here. Remember, here is what uh, Kamala 
has said in response to Biden's apology, she's not even really accepting it quite yet. Play six. Well, he says he's sorry. I'm going to take him at his word. But again, that doesn't address the issue of busing in America and the fact that he still, you know, we have to, we cannot rewrite history about what segregationists were doing at that time on a number of issues, including opposing busing. Now, let's just also note that this I'll take him at his word. Anytime someone says I'll take so-and-so at his or her word, that's just a polite way of saying, I mean, I don't really believe the person, but I'm just going to move past it for the time being. But I'm not really going to give them the credit that I would if I really believe them. You know, I'll take someone at their word. That's usually a backhanded. Yeah, they're probably lying, but I, I guess I won't. I won't call them out for lying this time around. I won't make a big deal about their lying right now. Uh, so that's that's what I think Kamala is doing here. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. I think that's, that's quite clear. That's quite apparent. But then we get to what Joe Biden says in response to Kamala, and he's admitted that he didn't see the ambush coming, folks. Play seven. In fact, Why didn't you fight it like this in the debate? In 30 seconds? Hey, Come what on, happens man. most in a debate, Mr. Vice President? People blow their time cue. You're the only person I've well, ever seen on a debate stage say I'm out of time. Well, we never had a place where you have 30 seconds, man. What I did want to do is get in that scrum. Do you think the American public looked at that debate? Take me out of it. And thought, boy, I really, I really like the way that's being conducted. They're really showing themselves to do really well. Come on, man. But they're, they're going to come after you. Sure, they're going to come after Were me. Were you prepared for them to come after you? I was prepared for them to come after me, but I wasn't prepared for the person coming at me the way she came at. She knew Bo. She knows me. I don't. Anyway, I. Now, a few things here. I, Biden is. Look, the guy's too old. He's done, folks. I mean, this is now at this point, it's like elder abuse to have him up there on stage and have all these Democrats just just pick at him because he's he's not ready for this. He's not up for this. He's he's past his time. He's past his prime. This should never. That's why he wasn't the heir apparent in 2016. That's why there was no effort, really no effort to have him run in 2016, the Democratic Party. They all kind of knew. And the reason that this time around he was ahead for so long in the polls was just he was the default candidate. He was the candidate that nobody really uh, was in a position to, you know, he was the guy with name recognition. He was the guy that everyone's like, oh, yeah, Biden, you know, Obama's VP. We're going to get to that in a second, by the way. Obama's VP, huh? Hmm. Isn't that interesting? But I think that there's some truth to what he says here that he wasn't prepared for Kamala to come after him the way she did because it's so underhanded and I think so disingenuous. She doesn't really think that Biden is a pro-segregationist or that Biden is a racist or that Biden, she doesn't really believe that. She just was looking for a way to take him down. And this is what the left does. They weaponize issues of race. They weaponize issues of sex and gender and class in ways that are absolutely disingenuous that bear no that, that that do not take into account whether it is it is just to say this about the person whether it is fair to take this approach to this person it's just whatever works whatever gets the job done whatever's the most effective smear and on the left to be called the racist is to be annihilated to be persona non grata to be pushed out and have all the the sins of society put upon your back like the scapegoats of ancient Greece.
and actually the Near Eastern Basin, which is where they believe that that was practiced of scapegoating, putting the sins of the community on that goat, sending it out into into the wilderness. Biden is never going to recover from this. But there's another point that I have to make here. People talk often about how great, and we will get into this, you know, how, oh, how great things were. Democrats will say how great things were under Obama. And they really have a deep personal affinity for Obama as a man. I've got to tell you something. I generally just opposed Obama's policies. I didn't spend much time. Yeah, he was really arrogant and talked down to people that politically disagreed with him. And there was a lot about, about Obama. He really does think that he's much smarter than he is. Uh, I think that's, that's always been the case. And that's because people have always elevated him beyond what his real knowledge and skill set would be if he weren't so adept at playing the system and being, a, being someone who operates within the liberal system that we, uh, that we currently have in this country. But Obama the man never really got as much attention, meaning his character. You know, what kind of character is Obama? And here's what I'll say to you. If Barack Obama had any real respect for his vice president of eight years, don't don't you think that the first black president in our nation's history who had the same VP for eight years and who claims to be very personally close to Barack, or personally close, rather, to Biden, and, and to have this, this relationship, don't you think that just as a man, as, as, a, as, a, as a guy, as a human being, when your vice president, somebody that you had stood on that stage with so many times and had been in the trenches with for eight years, is being called out for being a racist, if you're Barack Obama, don't you step up just out of the feeling of honor out of the feeling of obligation you have to Joe Biden as someone who served under you as vice president of the United States for eight years, don't you have the obligation to step forward and say, come on, guys, I'm not saying you have to vote for Biden, but he's not a racist. You know, either Barack Obama, well, I guess there's a couple options here. Maybe Barack Obama's too much of a, of a coward to expend his political capital and to, and to do that for Joe Biden. That might be it. He just He's just not a very honorable guy. I think that's a very... That's very possible that he doesn't feel that it's necessary to stand up for a friend who's in a situation like this. That's one part of it. Okay. Another possibility here. Maybe Barack Obama really does think that Biden's got some weird stuff when it comes to race and thinks that Biden should suffer the consequences of speaking about a racially charged issue or racially charged history the way that he did. And then the third option is maybe it's both of those things. But I'm sorry. The silence from Barack Obama about whether his VP, remember the first black president not speaking up in defense of his VP for eight years, when that VP, former VP, is now facing a unified left-wing attack from within his own party for being a racist, that's not something that we should be quick to ignore. There's something going on there. There's something going on for sure. And I, I think a large portion of it is I think Barack Obama just cares about Barack Obama. Doesn't feel the need. But I can tell you this, man. If, if one of my friends, someone I've worked with for years, is being called out on a question of their core character, and I'm in a position to put to rest what I think are false attacks, I don't care what the cost would be to my reputation. I don't care what the politics look like. I would, if I really 
had a relationship with that individual, had fought in the trenches with them, and, and had had a real bond with them, if I felt like I have a de- had a debt of honor to that person, I would step up. And I know all of you listening to this would too. And that Barack Obama hasn't done that tells me a lot. Yeah, I know they're going to say, oh, but he doesn't want to... He doesn't want to push for anyone in the primary. He doesn't want to, uh, you know, involve himself. He wants to just have the best candidate come out. No, I'm sorry. No one's saying that this is a question of who he's endorsing. It's just you don't let your VP for eight years get publicly skewered like this for being a racist unless there's something going on here. And that's what I want to get to. Why hasn't Barack spoken up in defense of Biden? There's got to be a reason. I want to know what the real reason is. I think one of the most uh, productive and profound presidents of our lifetime, I've seen my husband operate up close. Yes. He reads everything. He knows more than everybody in the room because he has to. Um, The job of the president isn't deciding between a bunch of good answers. It's not enough to just have a bunch of good advisors because if you have eight advisors, you're going to get eight different opinions. And ultimately, the commander-in-chief has to have the knowledge to be able to choose between the eight. That means you have to read everything. You have to know everything. You have to know more than the people around you. But I fear that sometimes people might have thought that Barack made it look easy, so it must be easy. It's kind of like, I guess if the black guy could do it, anybody can do it. And that's not true. It's a hard job. There's a very interesting, a very interesting moment here in, in Michelle Obama. Look, I know she's speaking about her husband, but she's now a public figure who very much involves herself in political discussion debate. But this is a reminder of what was really an Obamaism, which is the the conceit that that he once publicly shared that he knows more about foreign policy than his foreign policy advisor. He knows more about agriculture than his agricultural advisor. I mean, a, a a breathtakingly arrogant thing for anyone to think and only possible to believe if you do not know the limits of your knowledge and therefore the beginnings of your ignorance. But I think Barack did believe always that he was not just the smartest person in the room, which I think is highly debatable, but also that he just happens to know more about all of the issues that the president would come up against. Really, does he know more about the military than the people who actually have done something in the military? He knows more about it than they do? Really? Better understanding of what's possible for you know, the F-22 Raptor in combat than, uh, you know, ace pilots. I mean, you know, just go down the line. Generals who had served in the military 30 years. Barack knows more about military strategy than they do. I mean, Barack Obama came into office knowing nothing about national security, knowing nothing about intelligence in the military or what it's like to serve in any of those capacities. Now, I know you'll probably say to me, say, hold on a second, Buck. That is true of Donald Trump. He does not know. Yeah, but you know, Donald Trump doesn't think that he knows more than the generals. He's picking between the advice he gets from generals whom he has a deep and abiding respect for. Barack Obama really does think he knows more. And let's not forget, folks, that Barack fired General McChrystal, who was theater commander in Afghanistan at a critical point in that war because a Rolling Stone reporter who was reckless in what he was reporting and really really disgusting in in what he did, reported on the comments that McChrystal's staff made about Obama not knowing anything about the military, which, by the way, were true. Ah, but now we have the, the, uh, the hagiography, the, 
the saint worship of Barack Obama after the fact. He's so brilliant, so amazing. And you can say, oh, Buck, well, Michelle Obama is entitled to say whatever she wants. Yes, she is. And I'm entitled to say that it's not it's not accurate. He did not know more than everybody in the room. Uh, and. And I also I, I, I think that her comment that she makes at the very end of that somebody that, quote, if the black guy can do it, anybody can do it, end quote. Um, I think that's a very condescending thing to say to America, because I do not believe that Americans felt that way at all. Uh, I, I do not believe that 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 racist attitude that she makes this quip about was the case. Uh, I think that the critics of Barack Obama were the the serious critics of Barack Obama were overwhelmingly driven by his policy failures and his, I think, poor philosophy when it comes to government and governing um, as to, you know, so that's this is this is this is a, a common thing. We're always told is that, you know, with with Barack Obama specifically, you know, you are you are not to mention the fact that he's the first African-American president in a way that can be anything other than to suggest that he overcame this tremendous hurdle when Everyone that I spoke to who was voting for Barack Obama couldn't have been more pleased to be voting for the first African-American president. You know, they, they thought that this was a wonderful thing of it. And people like me who are conservatives had to admit that, yes, it was a tremendous milestone and a historic moment for the country. No question about it. So isn't that an advantage to be the first African-American president? You know, this is always we're, we're never allowed to speak honestly about this. We always have to be all oh, very, very careful. Oh, Barack Obama. What he did was it was impossible to be the first African-American president. And he did it. Well, OK, it was a milestone. But a lot of people were, were you know, a, a huge majorities of Americans were very proud. The ones who voted for Obama. I didn't vote for him, but it was a proud moment for the country to have the first African-American president. So isn't that then an advantage in the process? I, I this is never allowed to discuss this, though. Um but one of the most productive and profound presidents of our lifetime, Michelle says. Well, I mean, productive from the sense of big government and big spending. Uh, profound? How many Obama speeches do you guys listening to this remember? I remember very few. All right, this is one of these moments here on the show when I feel like some of you are probably going to get a little mad at me. And that's okay. Because in the Freedom Hub, we are like a family. You share your thoughts, often your unvarnished thoughts your uh, maybe a little bit too honest for comfort thoughts with me and i share the same in response to you right that i will tell you what i really think about things and that's why i i felt it's necessary to set up before we get into it exactly what my expectations uh, not only have been but what they will be going forward for the the women's world cup soccer team I know that we're supposed to all celebrate this. And yes, let me first say that I absolutely respect athletic prowess, uh, whether it's male or female. And I think that it's a great thing for America in any international competition. I would root for the international American curling team to win without even knowing what curling is. You know, I, I root for I get as excited to root for any American sports team as the next guy. All right, so let's start with that. The patriotic part of me is always happy to see my fellow Americans in international competition do well. And so with that, I'm happy that, sure, the United States women's soccer team had clinched its, uh, has, has won its second consecutive World Cup title. All right, so yay. Now, I, I don't want to be overly 
overly brotastic here. But women's professional soccer, there are some sports I love watching, for example, male and female professional tennis. You know, the, the, the pace that they're hitting and, and the, the way they're crafting the points. I mean, women's tennis to me is every bit as entertaining. And in some ways, I would argue even more entertaining than men's professional tennis because not that many of you care about this, but I actually like and play tennis. The, the men's serve is such a huge part of the game that especially for recreational players like me, watching the way that female professional players craft their points can be more more engaging, more instructive. Okay, you don't care about all that. You're a buck. I like football. Stop talking about all this fancy pants tennis stuff. Fine. But women's soccer, I don't think, is a particularly good spectator sport. This is an opinion, folks. Okay, I'm just sharing an opinion. And it's not helped when there's a clear effort by some members. And I feel bad for the women's the, the women's national team in this country uh, members, the members of the team who are not all, trying to be woke and trying to get all this media attention for their social justice. You know, a lot of them just want to want to compete, want to be the best athletes they can be, and that's great. I'm all for that. But some like Rapino, Ms. Megan Rapino, uh, decided to make this a platform for uh, a women's equality in pay and social justice and said she wouldn't go to visit uh, the White House even if Trump asked her to. And, you know, then you get the presidents having to respond to all this stuff. Anyway, and then when, when, the, woman, uh, when the women of the, world, of the U.S. national team won, you had a moment where the crowd started chanting the following, play 13. Now, here's the deal. Here's the reality. Women are, in fact, overpaid, overpaid, given the realities of the business model of World Cup soccer. That's right. If we're really talking about equal pay, then what we're talking about would be women getting paid less than they currently make because, and here's the part of it that the social justice warriors don't want to hear, folks. It's all about dollars in, dollars out. This is a business venture. This is not, in fact, a, a charitable cause. This is not you know, some nonprofit educational thing. This is about a spectator sport. It's for professional athletes. And not a whole lot of people. And I'm somebody who played soccer. I know I shouldn't admit that on this radio show. I played soccer all through high school. Captain of the team when I was a senior. Played in a pretty competitive league in New York City. Thought about trying to play in college, but got a little lazy and hadn't worked out enough and decided to drink beer and eat, eat wings instead. Um, but I don't enjoy watching women's soccer all that much. It's a little bit like watching the WNBA, which is just a lot of women who I know work very hard at their sport, but it's a lot of women passing the ball around and doing layups, and it looks like it's moving at about the speed of a high school of a high school game, you know, and not a particularly great high school game either, uh, high school men's game. This is also, I'm, I'm sorry, but if we're really talking about this, if sports are about excellence and skill, the under-15 men's national soccer team uh, handily beat the women's professional adult team recently, and people point this out and they say, well, what does that tell you about the difference in 
the speed, strength, and the overall skill sets of these athletes. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, I believe that women and men should play sports separately. And so I do think that women should be judged by how they do within their own gender athletically, the same thing for men. But spectators get to pick which one they find more entertaining and they put their dollars behind it. And that's why you have this pay, pay disparity. It's not about sexism. Uh, when, you, when you look at how much money we're really talking about here for men's soccer, the World Cup generates a few billion dollars. Okay, that's billion with a B. And for women's soccer, I'm trying to find the, the full the full numbers here. It's in the it's more like in the hundreds of millions. And as a share of overall uh pay, the women get something more like thirteen percent of the of the profits paid to them as athletes, whereas the men get paid something like 9%. So it's just the case. It's just true that not only do the women, uh, are the women not being underpaid because of sexism, but these women are getting paid more than they should be paid based upon what they would make in a, in a market-based system of how many people are really watching, how many people want to see Women play soccer at this level versus men play soccer at this level. Sorry, here we go. The Men's World Cup in Russia, for example, generated over $6 billion in revenue total. The Women's World Cup is expected to earn, you ready for this? $131 million for the full four-year cycle of 2019 to 2022. My friends, if, if they were being compensated based upon what they are really generating as a business, they would make even less money. So I need someone to just step up and explain to me what we are to make of equal pay chance when in this case, women are already being overpaid relative to their value in the marketplace. That is the truth of women's professional soccer. That's what is happening. Anybody want to try to offer up a, a rationalization or justification. Oh, women and men should be paid the same. Why? Why should they be paid the same? Who makes that determination? And let's understand that if that is some mandate for reasons of gender equality, then it's not. It's actually unequal pay. Because if you're really running a business, the people that make the most money for the business get paid the most money. If the people that make the most money don't get paid the most money, that's unequal. And that seems to be what, what a lot of these folks want. They want women to be paid more just because they're women. And that's why you have the Rapinos and others who, and also, I'm sorry, I, I got problems with, they beat a lot of subpar teams out there. They gloated about it. They were unprofessional. They beat one team like 14 to nothing, which is just, I, I, that is gross, all right? You know, you reach a point where you start passing the ball around, you put in your third stringers, and you stop trying to run the score up. And they went way past it. So I think they showed bad sportsmanship. I think that, you know, women's professional soccer is just not nearly as competitive as a lot of other sports, including women's professional sports out there. And, uh, you know, this is with time we face facts. Women are women in professionals in professional soccer are overpaid. And it's not because of sexism. It's because people want to watch people what they want to watch when they're at home. That's just that's just the truth. I come for the truth, my friends. 
are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. Let me be clear. Iran should not confuse American restraint with a lack of American resolve. We hope for the best, but the United States of America and our military are prepared to protect our interests and protect our personnel and our citizens in the region. Iran has announced that it has gone beyond the limits established in the nuclear deal on uranium enrichment. The Iranians have been holding this out as a threat for a while, and now it seems they may have made good on this threat. They do not seem to care about Trump's warning. Here's the uh, CBS News rundown of this today, that Iran has breached the terms of the 2015 nuclear deal, enriching uranium to more than 3.67 purity. It's Iran's second breach of the deal's terms, comes after President Trump warned the country to be very careful. Tehran wants Europe to help it get around U.S. sanctions, but Europe thus far seems to be siding with the U.S. Iran says if the EU fails to find a way to keep the nuclear deal viable within two months, it'll do something, quote, somehow stunning. So Iran here is trying to exert some leverage, trying to turn up the turn up the heat, turn up the pressure on Europe, create a wedge between the United States and Europe on Iran's nuclear program and force the Europeans to push us or push the Trump administration back into this deal. That's just not going to happen, folks. And that's not that's not realistic. I don't know if the Iranians understand that or not. They're not dealing with the Obama administration. They're not dealing with people who fail to understand the threat from the Iranian regime, who fail to understand that Iran's mullahs, that the Revolutionary Guard Corps, the people that run that country are enemies to the United States and enemies to the freedom of the Iranian people. That they're not just another group to be dealt with and talked to and massage things so that everything will be okay at some undetermined point in the future. The Iranians pose real risks and are a real threat of not just their own nuke, but proliferation in the region, uh, continued support to terrorist groups. And Trump is just saying, sorry, this is not going to continue. It's not going to not going to be something that we accept. A few things that come from this one What a crap, lousy deal Team Obama got us into in the first place. You know, think about this. We we had Trump walk out of the deal, and within what, a matter of months? The Iranians could turn around and say, yeah, well, all of our nuclear, all of our nuclear facilities can get back up and running, and we can pick up right where they left off. And that's what the objection was for many people to the deal that Obama signed all along. How painful can it be? How much of a of a smackdown of Iran's nuclear program can we really be talking about here when the nuclear program can be restarted and they can get, you know, all the centrifuges spinning again at the push of a button, basically? It's okay, we're gonna turn it all back on. That's not that's not what the deal ever should have been. It should have been dismantling. Remember. They gave Iran concessions, massive concessions. Obama showed up. Well, not him, but Obama sent 
pallets of cash in exchange for American hostages the Iranians were holding. We paid them. We unfroze their accounts. The, the, the despicably dishonest Obama foreign policy hacks running on saying, it's the Iranians' money. We're just giving it back to them. It's the Iranians' money. We're giving it back to them. Yeah, well, when you give someone money that they don't have, that you've taken from them because they've been bad, you are giving them money. It does not matter that it was originally their money. You know, if the federal government seizes your house and then and then they give your house back to you later, they're giving you back a house. It does not matter that they had initially that it had once belonged to you. If ownership had ceased to be. Yeah, but this is this is what you're dealing with with the with the Obama partisans all along. They they knew that the domestic political considerations of getting some foreign policy deal for Obama outweighed everything else here. The realities of the of the Middle East, the realities of the Iranian regime. So it was a really bad deal. And that's now more obvious than ever, because we see how quickly they can turn this whole thing around. Right, we see how quickly they can they can decide to spin the centrifuges and get to this new this new place of a possible weaponization of the of the uranium, getting closer and closer to it in a very short period of time. Uh, so that's that's part part one of this. And then you also have, uh, you know, the fear that keeps cropping up in my in my mind that someone in this administration or some group within the administration will take it upon itself uh, to push and push, not just for Iranian dismantling of a nuclear program, but turn this into a regime change strategy. And I, I know right now that a lot of people would say, oh, no, 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 that's not the goal. That will never be the goal. Well, I'm sorry. I've, I've seen this dance before. I worked at the CIA's Iraq office. I worked in the CIA's Afghanistan desk. And, you know, it rarely is the case that these things start because someone says, I've got an idea. Let's wage a really costly war and hope that somehow we can cobble this country back together afterwards and turn it into a functioning rule of law ordered representative democracy. I don't think that Trump will allow this to happen. But these situations can very quickly turn into something else. They can spiral out of control. There's a lot of miscalculation, a lot of momentum that can be created by events that are unforeseen. And that's why I get I get worried here, because if Iran keeps going with these with this nuclear program escalation, the likeliest scenario is that there will be or a likely scenario, I should say, is that there will be strikes on the nuclear facilities. And if we do take out Iran's nuclear program from the air as best we can, will it be a one-off or is this going to be a sustained campaign? Do we then have more of a no-fly zone and continued aerial overflight in order to make sure that they can't rebuild these facilities? No no more wars in the Middle East. I mean, this has got to be a mantra of the Trump administration. No more wars in the Middle East. We're done. It's not our fight. It's not our problem anymore. Got to find a way to hold the Iranians accountable without putting any U.S. troops on the ground or in harm's way. We announced the unsealing of sex trafficking charges against Jeffrey Epstein. The charges allege that Epstein sexually abused young girls by enticing them to engage in sex acts for money. Epstein is charged in a two-count indictment. First, conspiracy 
to commit sex trafficking, and second, the substantive crime of sex trafficking of underage girls. Beginning in at least 2002 and continuing until 2005, Epstein is alleged to have abused dozens of victims by causing them to engage in sex acts with him at his mansion in New York and at his estate in Palm Beach, Florida. The victims, all underage girls at the time of the alleged conduct, were given hundreds of dollars in cash after each encounter, either by Epstein or by one of Epstein's employees. Jeffrey Epstein, the pedophile billionaire, who is we've known for a long time as connections at the at the uh, very highest levels of American politics and media and who got a a shockingly light sentence. I mean just to put this in perspective, for most people one one count, one allegation of uh paying a, an underage female for commercial sex work and especially if there's a transporting of that underage female across state lines to do so for most people one count of that would be you're 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 done you're finished you are going to spend uh well over a decade maybe a couple of decades in federal prison you're going to be a sex offender for the rest of your life you're you're just it's all it's all over and and rightly so i mean we have to have there are some areas of the law where the penalties have to be severe and sexual exploitation uh, of minors, sexual exploitation of minors, in this case for for profit and on a systematic or rather uh, as a commercial venture and for a systematic um, venture, essentially, where he's moving women and, and bringing his own staff to bear to pay the women. And I mean, just this was so premeditated and so sick and and horrific. And he got some unbelievably light state jail sentence for solicitation of a prostitute, which would generally be a, a pretty, um, that is a, a much more minor charge than what he would have faced at the federal level. So now they've come along with these federal charges that could send him to prison for 15 years is what I saw today. Some people, I think, said 45 years. It depends on if they're going to run the statutes concurrently and you know, he, he, whether he's going to take a deal or not and all these other things come into play. There's also the possibility of a superseding indictment. But the big takeaways uh, for me here are that, one, it does show you that there are different tiers or different uh, justice systems, depending on how rich and connected someone is. Uh, this, is not, this was not a close call. This was not an individual who should have been given the benefit of the doubt or it was a uh, it was a just or even arguably just thing to show him a particular degree of mercy from the from the judicial system. I mean, this is someone who the ju- uh, the judicial system of the United States exists to severely punish individuals who engage in this kind of conduct, a continued, deeply immoral horribly damaging, and and highly, highly illegal. If the justice system does not punish those people, why do we even have a justice system? I do think that's a fair question to ask. What is really the purpose of it? If someone like an Epstein can get away with what he did, and he effectively did get away with it. He registered as a sex offender, but I think he spent 18 months in a county jail in Palm Beach 
And that county jail allowed him into a wing where he was essentially free to move around as he saw. It just, it was a non-punishment punishment. It wasn't a punishment that anybody would ever think was fitting for the kind of crimes that he did. Remember, not once. This is over and over again. The guy's a true predator or alleged. Actually, no, we don't have to say just alleged. They're alleged acts, but he is a proven predator. You know, he, he already pleaded guilty to the state-level charges of soliciting a prostitute. I can't remember if it was soliciting an underage prostitute or just soliciting a prostitute, but soliciting was the charge that they they hit him with initially, and he went in for, for 18 months on that one and didn't even do real time. It was a, more of a halfway house situation. So the justice system is not always just. We know that, but that's a, the Epstein situation is a reminder of that. You know, It's a reminder of how this, look, you know, O.J. Simpson got away with something that was horrific and terrible. And, you know, there are other people that have gotten away with things that we know were, um, they were clearly guilty, but for reasons of politics and power and money, they were able to either escape entirely from, from justice or get a very, very different kind of sentence than they would have if they were a normal person. You know, an everyday, an everyday person, one of the, one of the normal folks out there. But then you have the other side of this, the political side of this as well, and what could be happening here. This was back in 2015, and it's Trump talking about the Epstein case. Remember, this has been known for a long time. People have been running articles on this. The Miami Herald actually has some very interesting investigative reporting on the issue of Epstein and, and, and what happened here. But here's what Trump had to say about this back in 2015. Play clip 21. Bill Clinton. Nice guy, uh, got a lot of problems coming up, in my opinion, with the famous island with Jeffrey Epstein. A lot of problems. Hmm. So he is referring to what was called by many pedophile island and also the transport to pedophile island of young underage girls who are being uh, paid for, uh, for sex acts and that the media was referring to this plane as the Lolita Express. Trump was talking about this back in 2015. Bill Clinton, turns out, flew on the Lolita Express even more frequently than had previously been known. Spent a lot of time with Epstein. And this is where you're going to have to watch very closely how the media deals with this and how they try to present these facts because... You'll see a lot of, oh, Clinton and Trump, friends with Epstein. Clinton and Trump, friends with Epstein. That's the way they're always going to frame this. Uh, a few things have come. One is that Trump was willing to, from what I understand, be cooperative with authorities against Epstein, and a lot of other people were not. I'm just I'm seeing some of this today as more research comes out. But also, Bill Clinton was willing to ditch his Secret Service detail in order to go on the Lolita Express. And, and I would just say that, you know, Bill Clinton is somebody who has been a- accused, was accused by women many, many years ago of a very specific and, and credible sexual assault. And Bill Clinton is absolutely somebody that we know has almost, almost impossible to believe impulse control problems when it comes to his sexual appetites. I mean, this is a guy who we all know what happened with Monica Lewinsky in the Oval Office. 
Uh, how how much does it stretch credulity to think that Bill Clinton was at a minimum hanging around Epstein and aware of the fact that something very sketchy was going on? I know the press is going to try to say, "Oh, but Trump also knew." Trump also, I, I, I don't. But look, I just I don't believe that that Trump would have stuck around or would have been around this guy if he had thought that he was involved with underage girls. You know, Trump is, and I've I've always felt this way because, and the, the left, you got to remember. One of the things that they try to do is dirty up all sides so that you can never really hold them accountable. So when we say, well, Bill Clinton was, was credibly accused by women on the record of sexual assault and the whole story lines up and everything lines up about it and they didn't wait 30 years, they didn't go in Anderson Cooper and say something crazy, everything about their claim was credible. Uh, and Bill Clinton was a sexual harasser and was a sexual predator while he was, pre- while he was president. Those are all real things. They'll say, oh, but look at, look at Trump and what Trump did. And to that, I always want to say, well, Trump was a playboy, but I do not believe, and there is no real evidence or record of Trump ever being a predator. And those are very different things. Those are very different. One is, you know, the equivalent of a guy who likes to party a little, a little bit harder than maybe some of us would like, but is always operating within the bounds of the law, within the bounds of the law, and within the bounds of of consent uh, when it comes to his amorous interactions. Uh, I do not believe that that's true of Bill Clinton. I think that Bill Clinton was someone who was willing to use force. I think he did attack women. I think he did push himself on women. And and I think a man who would be president of the United States and do what he did to an intern, um, that tells you a lot, all right? No, no one has said that Trump has or, or in any way conducted himself while he's been president in a vein that is similar to what you've seen, what you saw, what's on the record, what's been established about Bill Clinton. I think, I mean, this is my way of saying, I think that there are aspects of this Epstein story that are still going to come out that show not only was he able to rig the justice system in his favor because he was so powerful, because he's such a big checkbook. That's clear. That's obvious. And I do think that Alex Azar is going to have to answer for this. He's the, uh, right now, what is he, Secretary of... He's a secretary of housing and urban development, I think, or no, what? No, that's um, producer Mike. Who is that? What is Alex Azar secretary of uh, housing and urban development? Is it? No, is it HHS or HUD? I, I can't remember. He's one one of those. Yeah, I'll check I it thought, out real quick. I thought uh, Ben Carson was H was HUD. Ah, uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I think Azar. I forget. Anyways, he's a secretary of one of the one of the cabinet level positions. But if, if he doesn't have a good explanation for this, yeah, I think he should go. I think that there's there does need to be accountability for this. How can you let a a serial a serial underage sexual abuser and child predator go unpunished or not punished in any I mean people go to prison longer. Legitimately people will go to prison longer for cheating on a, a little bit of their taxes than this guy went to prison, Epsi went to prison for molesting young girls and and really Explain. Yeah, he's HH. Ah, okay. Yeah, Azar is HHS secretary. That's what I thought. But he's really exploiting young women and doing horrible things to them. Um, and that if that's not going to be punished by people in prosecutors' offices, then we have to ask what is going to be punished by it by them. So I think that's that's an, that's important. And there's the real possibility here of some names getting named that might be a shock to some folks. Um. That or or that some people don't want to hear. I can tell you this: the media is definitely sweating it on the whole Bill Clinton thing because they know. Look, Bill Bill Clinton is probably 
probably accurately described as at least a, a low-grade sex addict. I mean, this is a guy who cannot control himself. Uh, there's no other way to explain his behavior when he's in the Oval Office, when he's president of the United States. I mean, this, this, and that's just what we know about. Remember, remember the Monica thing when he was president? That's just the one time that we found out what happened. You really think that that's the only time that that guy was acting the way, the, in that manner when he was president? I don't think so. Not at all. I don't buy that for a second. But even though the Clintons are not quite the dynasty and the pathway to power for the Democrats that they used to be, they will, for the purposes of trying to just defend the Democratic Party's longstanding association with the Clintons and that Hillary Clinton is still, generally speaking, held in, in, uh, in positive stead by the, or you know, in, in positive light by the Democrats, they will try to make sure this stuff of Bill Clinton, any association he has with Epstein never comes out. Now, could, it be, could there be even worse stuff? Not just about Clinton, but about any number of figures? Yes, absolutely. And let's remember that Epstein before got the sweetheart deal, so it didn't seem like he would necessarily uh, spill the beans, so to speak. It didn't seem like he, was, he would be in a, in a place where he would want to tell everyone what really happened. But if someone's facing 45 years in prison and they have a card to play, which means bringing down other very powerful people, that's when they're going to play that card. That's what Epstein might end up doing here. That's why you got to watch this one closely. We've known all along that this didn't add up, that the, the way the case was handled stunk, and that there's just more going on here in this island and the plane. And, you know, you know, you're a public figure of any kind, and you're around somebody that you believe is involved in the sexual trafficking of underage girls. I'm sorry, but that's got to be the ultimate red flag moment where you're like, I, I can't be anywhere near this person and I got to call the authorities. So people knew about this, folks. People on Epstein's staff and I think some very powerful people. And I think some very powerful Democrats. But we'll have to wait and see when we get more details. Why did we set up NATO, Chris? So no one nation could abuse the power in the region, in Europe, that would suck us in in a way they did in World War I and World War II. It's being crushed. Look at what's happening with Putin. While he, while Putin is trying to undo our elections, he is undoing elections in, in Europe. Look what's happened in Hungary. Look what's happened in, in Poland. Look what's happened in Moldova. Look what's happening. You think that would have happened on my watch or Barack's watch? You can't answer that, but I promise you it wouldn't have. And it didn't. Yeah, Biden. You show him. Talking to Bro Cuomo. Do you even lift, bro? Uh, on CNN there. Election interference never would have happened on Barack or Biden's watch. Bro Cuomo doesn't jump in there, which is interesting because, hold on a second. I'm pretty sure that so-called Russian election interference did, in fact, exactly occur on Barack and Biden's watch. I also remember that Barack Obama made the decision not to do anything about that election interference. Oh, that's right. What a shock. What a surprise. And yet the history is being rewritten and Biden is just saying stupid things, which is really where that's what Biden. That's where Biden excels. Biden's special skill is to always find a way to say something in the dumbest possible fashion and then have the media try to clean up the mess behind him like the guy walking behind 
the horses in the parade with the, the shovel, you know? That's what the media does for Biden. They're just trying to clean up, trying to clean up whatever Biden throws out there. And, you know, this is why he's never been a good candidate. He's never been a good option. I think this has always been uh, this has always been quite clear to those who are are paying attention. Um, But oh, one other thing, the NATO talking point. This is, you know, it's like Biden doesn't pay attention to anything that's going on. He just. There's certain flashes that he has to to what Democrats have said at different times about Trump. How has NATO been destroyed? You know, a lot, a lot of people said this for a long time. Oh, my gosh, NATO is going to be destroyed by Trump. How exactly has that happened? If anything, Trump raised the issue of NATO needing and NATO members needing to pay more for their own defense as they agreed to initially. And, and have agreed to for a long time. And, you know, that they have a target they're supposed to hit. They're not hitting it. And now there's more money coming to the alliance. There have been people saying that what Trump has done for NATO has been a good thing. But he's still, oh, NATO is going to be destroyed. And he's undermining our standing in the world. And who, who still believes this stuff? How has NATO been destroyed? See, if Chris Cuomo was a real, real journalist, he'd ask these questions. He'd say, hold on a second. Hold on a second there, Biden. Do you like... When you're done taking your metrics weight gainer, you know, are you actually in a position to uh, say you would have stopped election interference when you were, in fact, the one in office with President Obama when the election interference occurred? But who needs real journalists when you got CNN? CNN's out there to do exactly what they're doing. Be propagandists for the Democrats. So in that sense, they are absolutely succeeding. So if you run... You are also sitting congressman right now, but if you decide to run for president, cough, cough, um, you, uh, <laughs> if you would, are you, would you give up your seat in Congress? Yes. You would give it up? Yes. Really? And I think That's you have to. I, now, I, why is that? Well, I think you have, if you're you know, seeking such a, a big job that would affect so many people, you have to assure you know, uh, the people you're asking to vote for you that you're not hedging and that you yeah. don't have you know, a lifeboat uh, waiting Burn for you. Burn the boats. Burn the boats, as Cortez did. You know, they, <laughs> they stormed the land and... He had them burn the ships behind them so that there was no looking back. And I, and I would want to, I would want people to know I'm putting my all into this, and I don't have a life insurance policy. That was Eric Swalwell. Then let me also just note that Cortez did not burn his ships, although people always say that he scuttled them, he sank them, he did not light them on fire. That wouldn't have made any sense. There's no reason to do that. He scuttled his ships. A little historical. Accuracy never hurt anybody. But uh, Swalwell there, Congressman Swalwell, he of Russia collusion fantasy fame, he said that if he was going to run for president, he's going to give up a seat in Congress. It turns out, well, we're going to find out how serious Mr. Swalwell was about all that because womp, womp, we had some sad news today for the point zero 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 one percent of the population that was willing to actually vote for Eric Swalwell to be president of the United States. Play clip 19, the big announcement. Today ends our presidential campaign. But it is the beginning of an opportunity in Congress with a new perspective shaped by the lives that have touched mine and our campaign throughout these last three months to bring that promise of America to all Americans. 
Today ends Eric Swalwell's presidential hopes. Oh my gosh. How will America cope without Eric Swalwell? I mean, this guy, this guy seriously could could make you think twice about a whole lot of things in your life. Eric Swalwell, who was going to run as, as president of the United States, and someone told him at some point this was a good idea. I don't know. I kind of wanted him to stay in it a little bit longer. I, I kind of wanted Eric Swalwell to be in in the mix uh, because it, it was going to be fun to watch him continue to be up on stage and act like he is saying things that anybody cares to hear about. Um, his whole thing was that he was going to end gun violence. Uh, that's that's such a, a an inherently unserious platform. What would that mean? And what would be the the end goal? What would be an acceptable end state? A, a total end to gun violence? We all know that's never going to happen. So what was the the purpose of the Swallow candidacy? I think it's that people would talk about him so they'd remember his name because he couldn't really think that this was going to work out any differently. But um, among the worst of all the candidates, I think Marianne Williamson, yeah, she sounds like some hippy-dippy loon who sells wind chimes and healing crystals and all that. That's that's all true. But at least she's entertaining. Swalwell wasn't even entertaining. You know, Kucinich was a crazy person back in the day, but you would watch him the way that you would watch a car wreck that you drive past. You're like, wow, what is going on there? Swalwell wasn't even that. You know, people have said that he was like the fire festival of presidential campaigns. I don't think that's fair because fire festival, at least theoretically, could have been pulled off. Swalwell as president was never going to be pulled off. This was absolutely never, ever, ever going to work. And yet he did make it to that first debate. I don't remember a thing he said other than I'm going to make gun violence disappear, which turns out he can't do. So Swalwell, alas, Swalwell, we hardly we hardly knew ye. Uh, what a shame. What a shame for, for nobody. Uh, actually, this is something that we hopefully will never have to talk about again. Eric Squallow's out. First one down, 20 or so to go. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. We made ours go up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. It is time for the Roll Call, everybody. I hope you had a fantastic uh, Fourth of July. I really do. I had a great one. Just lots of relaxation. Time with some wonderful friends. Hanging out here in Washington, D.C. It's a good place to be on the Fourth of July. Especially when you have a Trump presidency going on. Because patriotism is in fashion, my friends. That's right. Love of country is back on the menu here in D.C. Because Trump is the president. And that's a fun thing, a good thing. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you want to be a part of this action. And uh, that's the way to do it. Let's get to it, my dudes and dudettes. Aaron. Hey, Buck, I feel like there's no hope for millennials or Gen Xers. I recently found myself in an argument with my husband's cousin. He's a really smart kid, first-generation Indian-American, who graduated with a chemical engineering degree. Of 
course, he's a Sanders supporter and was shocked and appalled that I was a filthy capitalist. My husband interjected at one point as he is a physician whose experience includes moonlighting for the VA and was a partner in a small uh, hospitalist group before Obamacare essentially put his group out of business. My husband proceeded to explain to my cousin point by point for two hours how Medicare for all would destroy health care as we know it. His cousin had no response. He just didn't get it. He kept using commie phrases like worker exploitation. He also thinks that Venezuela is a poor representation of socialism and their destruction is America's fault. Let's just take a pause here for a moment, Aaron. Isn't that so convenient? Well, isn't that special? That Venezuela is America's fault. El Salvador is America's fault. Uh, Guatemala, Honduras, America's fault. Mexico is America's fault. The Middle East is America's fault. I mean, is there any country around the world that is in a state of dysfunction, disrepair, and just general bad situation where it's not America's fault? I just I want to know. I'm sure you could find some leftists who would claim that no matter what the country is, its bad state of affairs is attributable to, that's right, America. Uh, what else does Aaron have here for me? He's not alone. Literally every single one of my Gen X friends are either socialists or Democrats that think they're right or racist, homophobic, xenophobic, terrible people. I'm officially terrified for my children's future. The public has been thoroughly brainwashed. I feel like there's no way to persuade the other side, and it's really depressing. I voted for a libertarian last election. I'll be voting for Trump in 2020, Aaron. Well, Aaron, I know the feeling sometimes. There are a lot of a lot of silly, silly commies running around, and that's not a good thing. Not good for anybody. I wish they would live in reality, but they prefer to live in some fancy pants fantasy land, and that's where they are. Richard, happy Hoosier hellos. Look down, look down. The only, oh, uh, I see this is a Les Mis thing. Look down, look down. The only ones who are Les Mis are all of us when you're not on the radio to keep us warm and safe at night. Thank you, Richard. With the topic of Hong Kong, could Britain take back Hong Kong if China breaks its agreement? God save the queen who holds her shield high. Uh, well, Richard, I think the answer to that is definitely No. Uh, the Brits would certainly not be able to uh, prevail in a in an open war with the Chinese and they wouldn't want to go to war with the Chinese. So I know you're just theoretically putting that out there to be a little little thought provoking. Uh, but now China's going to get its way in Hong Kong. Remember that the relative self-rule at Hong Kong had an expiration date on it anyway. So all that's going to happen here is that the Chinese are going to say, you know what, we're going to move the date up a little bit on that one. And nobody, my friends, is going to stop them. Nobody is going to stop them. Um, let's see what else we have here. Larry wrote, uh, he sent me a, a photo of Buck Hill and he wrote, I found Buck's Hill. Pretty good view from the top. This is from Theodore Roosevelt National Park. Uh, well, it turns out there are a lot of things named for me around the country. So I'm glad that you found one, my friend. Thank you for sending it to me. Susan writes, you are absolutely right. Barack Obama never had any backbone. If you remember, he went to bat for the soldier that defected, went to the other side, brought him back a hero. Everybody knew he was a traitor. And Susan's talking about 
Bo Bergdahl here. And yes, I do remember that Bo Bergdahl came home to a hero's welcome. And a lot of people in the military did not think that that was appropriate. So, Susan, I hear what you're saying. And yeah, Barack Obama, I, I don't remember him doing things that were politically difficult, politically painful. Uh, I don't remember him doing anything that I would consider to be even as a politician brave. Greg writes, Obama knows his endorsement is the kiss of death for a campaign. Greg, I don't know about that. Um, Obama, it's not really clear. We have to see how this plays out. I mean, Hillary, it didn't matter that Obama was for Hillary the last time around because everybody was basically for Hillary in the establishment. So it's tough to pin that one on Obama. I have to see what he what he decides to do here. Randy. Hey, Buck Shields. Hi, love your show. I saw a quote from Powerline. I'm embellishing it a bit, but I love it. Just wondering why so many people from around the world are crossing oceans, traveling thousands of miles, riding on the tops of trains, braving, dealing with the cartels and the coyotes, crossing deserts, swimming rivers and climbing fences to get into our concentration camps. Uh, yes, Randy, that's one of the one of the most important differentiators between an actual concentration camp and what is going on at our border. We aren't detaining anybody that isn't entering the United States illegally, meaning that we're not scooping people up against their will in their own countries or in their own lands and saying, hey, now you get to be in a concentration camp. Not at all. They're they're showing up willingly and knowingly. I mean, they, they are breaking U.S. law in the process. So you are correct that this is a a foolish, a, a silly comparison that is out there. But the Democrats have stuck to it because as long as they can focus on conditions at the border, they do not have to address what is the much bigger and more long term issue of what the heck are we going to do about this border? They don't want to think about that. They don't want to deal with that. They just want to grandstand on the issue of uh, of border conditions. And that's why there's been such a focus on this. And this has all been very, very planned, very staged from their perspective. There's the, the PR and this, I think, is quite clear. Uh, the, the PR maneuvering that's going on here. Glenn writes, Buck, I swear every time you have Jesse Kelly on, he grows taller than the last time. Is that because he swells with pride at being on your show? Hope you had a great fourth. Shields high. Well, Glenn, thank you. And it would not surprise me if, in fact, Jesse Kelly did swell with privates on this show because the feeling is mutual. I always enjoy going on Jesse Kelly's show. He's a great dude and uh, one of the guys out there that I'm looking forward to working with more going forward. Steven! Hey, Buck, you're definitely missing out not having watched Gettysburg yet. What a perfect weekend to watch it. Even pretty quotable, though it's hard to find other people that pick them up when you use them. Enjoy when you get to it. Steven... I cannot tell a lie. I did watch Gettysburg over the weekend, over the 4th of July weekend, and I fell asleep during it on my couch. So I tried, my friend. I tried. But, you know, the other problem I have with it is you have uh, Martin Sheen playing Robert E. Lee, and I do not think he is good at playing Robert E. Lee. I I think that was a very poor choice, and it bothers me because Martin Sheen is an annoying Hollywood lib commie and he should not be in that role. Um, he just wasn't a good choice for the role of Robert E. Lee. Uh, maybe just because I find him very annoying. 
Ron, I'm hoping I'll finish Gettysburg at some point. I'm not saying I'm donezo on it forever. I'm not saying that there's no way, no how I'm ever going to watch Gettysburg all the way through. But if we're really going to be uh, be truthful with each other, team, and, and that's what I aim to do all the time with you, if we're really going to be honest, I just I did think it was a little, it, it's a little slow. It's just a little slow. I don't know. I, I know people don't like to hear this. They go, oh, Gettysburg is a great movie. Eh. I also think it's hard to really, to, you know, to dramatize the action sequences of, of the Civil War stuff. It's a, lot of, it's a lot of guys standing around behind a fence, firing one shot at a time kind of slowly and just waiting to see if they get hit. I mean, it's, it's just visually, it's not that great of, a, of an exchange. It's not like, say, you know, the, the clash of swords and, and steel and all that that you get in, in a movie like uh, Gladiator or, you know, it's not nearly as interesting tactically and, and there's not as much action as in something like Black Hawk Down. It's a lot of dudes standing around in a line firing off one shots at each other. Speaking of firing off one shots, I had a great time. Some of you saw this on, on Instagram because I posted the photos. I had a great time out with uh, Tony Schaefer, who you might know from Fox News. He's a fantastic dude. Him and his son took out myself and a, and a bunch of friends. And we went out to a range in Virginia right on uh, Saturday after the 4th of July. And man, we let it we let it rip. We were sending it down range for, for hours. We had a, so much fun. Uh Tony had a great, you know, I live in the, in the People's Republic of Washington, D.C., so you, you can't really own firearms here. Tony brought, man, he brought a couple of different ARs. He brought a, 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 10, a 10 millimeter handgun, which I have to admit, I've never fired a 10 millimeter handgun before. It's pretty rare from what I understand. Also fired some different uh, SIG models. That's always really fun. SIG 320 was really nice, really compact. I enjoy that weapon a lot. So, yeah, we just did a lot of firing. Oh, and an M1 Garand, which, man, you got to be ready for that thing. That thing, that thing will wake you up in the morning. So, kaboom. That's qu- it's quite a weapon. Although, the, it, it does still do the little ping noise when the, when the uh, magazine ejects from it. Um, so, yeah. Or actually, no, it's a... Isn't it, isn't, the, isn't it technically... People say clip improperly all the time when they mean magazine... But in the Garand, is it... Uh, no, it's still a magazine. I remember loading it in now. It's pretty close to a clip, but it's actually a magazine. All right, team. That's it for today. I'm so glad that you're back. So glad we're able to hang out again. I'll be around every day this week, of course. And uh, going to be working through all the latest in news and across the country and around the world. Thank you so much for being here. I missed you, though. This is always my problem. Whenever I'm out for a few days of vacation, even if it's a worthy vacation like... Independence Day. Uh, I miss the team. So it's so good to be back. Excited to talk to you tomorrow. Let's get to it. Shield's hot.